I think the record label has gone from being the instructor to being the partner. I think that's been the biggest transition. I think for the longest time, people would be like, hey, I have talent, record label, sign me, make me a star. And now it's like, hey, I have, I'm a star. I have a plan for myself. Here's what I want to do. And the record label's like, okay, well, we're going to help you create a roadmap to get there. Like we believe you. So we're going to invest here and give you the resources to go create the art that you need to get there. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pili, and welcome to episode 124 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Dimples Ijioma. She's one of the music industry's most sought after digital marketers and has spent over a decade helping artists, agencies, and record labels to strategize their digital campaigns. After working in-house at Capitol Records, she decided to found her own boutique agency, Ijioma. Dimples has worked with some pretty heavy hitters like Mariah Carey, Migos, Gal Gadot, who plays Wonder Woman, Lee Daniels, Twitter, Spotify, RCA Records, Ryan Coogler. You get the idea. She has worked with almost everyone. During our conversation, Dimples walks us through the tactics she's used to orchestrate viral music and content. She also talked about the psychology of marketing to millennials versus Gen Z and even Gen Alpha. She also took us through the pros and cons of the different social media platforms she's used. I definitely took a lot of notes because her insights can be applied across many other industries as well. Before we hear the rest of Dimple's episode, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our podcast so amazing stories like Dimple's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own Offscript journeys. The She's Offscript podcast also has a membership community to help you launch and grow your business with resources and coaching. Join our Boss Offscript community today by going to sewaajpele.com forward slash community. With that, let's go off script with digital marketing architect, Dimples Ijioma. Dimples Ijioma, welcome to She's Off Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. For anyone who hasn't come across you before, could you share who you are and what you do? I am a self-proclaimed digital architect, so that means I help create stories, help artists with brand messaging, and just overall rolling out projects digitally. So I have to confess that the music industry is one that I have not much insight into. My husband, on the other hand, was very excited to hear about this because he is very and has always been very entrenched into the music scene, rap, hip hop, all of that. So, but today I really want to be a sponge and soak in all of your knowledge around the tactics that you are using to promote artists and their work in the music industry and how maybe we can borrow from that in the business world. But before that, how did you get into this space? I know you have a physical therapy background. Yeah, honestly, it was all happenstance. Well, originally I was going to nursing school, but then I wound up changing my major after getting injured, playing basketball and having to go through my own bout of physical therapy. And then while I was in school, I wound up designing a couple of websites, which a friend of a friend was able to connect me with somebody else to build their website. And I wound up building out Funk Master Flex's site. So it's one of those things where it's like, hmm, there's opportunity here. How do I maximize it? 
How did you then take that relationship and then turn it into a viable business for yourself? It took a while, honestly. I don't I, I don't want to present as though it was instantaneous or that I built one website and then suddenly now I'm making sites for millions of people. Not at all. That building that site allowed me to understand that there was opportunity to make money, but figuring out how exactly I wanted to do that became an ongoing conversation with myself, right? Like because at the end of the day, there's like a standard of living in which you want to maintain for yourself and build one website is not going to help me achieve that overnight. So I, st- I was still in school. I was working on my degree. I was making graphics and flyers here and there. I was making digital art here and there, but nothing substantial. But as time progressed, I figured that making digital art or graphical assets or web design really wasn't my forte. The thing that I wanted to do, I was great at it, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to delve a little bit more into marketing and public relations. So I wound up getting one of my first clients, B Major, and that's kind of where things really started from there. Got it. And I think it's important to see that iteration and the journey it's taken you to get here, because as you said, you kind of have to figure out what works for you, especially in this space where there's no blueprint, right? You can make it what you want it to be. So today, could you give us a little bit of insight into what you are doing as you work with music artists? Right now, it's about creative content strategy, brand alignments, and new inventive ways to reach their audiences digitally. Like, that's really it. Because everyone's at home, but, you know, sometimes being always connected can be overwhelming, right? Like, and you have to disconnect. So how do I get the person who spends time after 6 p.m. away from their phone and mobile devices to buy into you? How do we share a bit of your story to where even when they're not connected to the internet, they're still a fan or they're spending their off time when they're not at work remotely or in person trying to research you? You're kind of giving us the landscape today. How would you say the landscape for promoting artists and their music has evolved over, say, the last 10 or maybe even 20 years? Originally, everything was very segmented, right? Like it it became stories and just delivery around like where you are in the world. So you're in Texas. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. The marketing that I would do in Texas would have been different than the marketing I would do in North Carolina, which would have been different than the marketing that I would do in California. Right. But what you would see in Texas, like, say I'm talking about, okay, I have my cell phone. Say I'm talking about a phone and the phone that I was sent to you in Texas might be red. The phone that I was sent to sent to Georgia might be red, but in North Carolina it might be white, right? Because it's above the Bible belt and they like, you know, very minimal things, but with like a splash of color. The phone that I send to New York and LA because they're ultra minimalist, maybe black. It might not be white. It may be black because if you know fashion trends and the way people consume tend to wear black, a la me, I'm blending in with my couch. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like originally the way marketing worked was you'd segment your audience. What we're finding now, modern times is you can't segment your audience because though you're in Texas and I'm in LA, we're consuming something at the same time right? Like digitally, we're getting at the same time. It's not about where you are now. It's about what I'm giving you. Interesting. And I also wonder about, because you do work with record labels today. I do wonder how 
the role of those record labels has changed, especially given that the internet has leveled the playing field considerably. Someone can write their own beat in their basement and have it on Spotify or wherever else tomorrow. And if they do the right things, it goes viral. So what role are those record labels playing today? I think the record label has gone from being the instructor to being the partner. I think that's been the biggest transition. I think for the longest time, people would be like, hey, I have talent, record label, sign me, make me a star. And now it's like, hey, I have, I'm a star. I have a plan for myself. Here's what I want to do. Then the record label's like, okay, well, we're going to help you create a roadmap to get there. Like we believe you, so we're going to invest here and give you the resources to go create the art that you need to get there. So they're more of a partner that helps them with amplification, or is it that they're helping them still with distribution? Both amplification and distro. So the way that I like to relate it is kind of like putting gas on a fire. There has to be a little bit of a burn for it to work, right? But the label is, we're going to give you a whole bunch of gasoline and we're going to make this explode. But we're not going to throw all the gasoline on you at once, because if you're looking at the idea of a match and you throw a gallon of gasoline on a tiny match, it's going to snuff out the flame. But if I trickle some gas, let the flame pick up, you wind up with a big bonfire. The reason I was really intrigued by what it is you do is because we now have a resurgence of apps like TikTok and Instagram Reels where we're getting exposed to a lot of new music and the music is going viral, not necessarily because of the music, but because of the things people are doing to the music. And what I didn't realize until I came across it is some of this stuff is intentional. And that's one of the tactics that you also use to help to get your artists go viral. So you mentioned your digital architect. What are some of your most effective tactics for giving your artists exposure? It's two strategies. It's converting owned and operated and then paid media. What does that mean? So it's the idea of prime example. Do you remember the Lil Wayne Carter three cover where he's like a baby? Mm-hmm. Yep. Cover and he's got the three, like right here, the little three tattoo on his forehead. Mm-hmm. A way to convert owned and operated with that album cover would be creating a filter where you get to go like this. And now you're babyfied with the three on your forehead, right? Because what you're going to go ahead and do is take a picture like that and post it on channels that you own and operate. And now I'm maximizing the exposure of my album cover because people are going to trace back. It's, it's clicking for me that I don't know if you remember when the Straight Outta Compton movie came out. It's literally it's the same thing. Everyone was posting it. You wonder, where did that come from? And you look up the movie. Okay. So the first thing. And then the secondary thing, it's like paid media. So that could be tapping in with an influencer who already creates content that you like, and then figuring out an organic way for them to utilize what it is that you're trying to promote. Or it could be just putting ads behind assets that you create for yourself. So talk to me more about the influencer partnerships that you have in the music industry. I wonder how does the TikTok sort of engagement come about versus maybe the Instagram meme style accounts that we've been seeing grow today? What do those engagements look like and what's the conversation you're having with the influencers? 
TikTok is its own world. I don't think people are really into TikTok the way that they know how. TikTok is, okay, you're in your 30s? Yes. TikTok is to Gen Z as MySpace was to us, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's its own world. You get to build your own site, your own reflection of what you want to share. You have your top eight. So for them, it's the people they follow. Your profile can have music. So that's like your favorite TikToks at the top or the things that you engage with. You can collaborate. So I don't know if you remember back in the day on MySpace, if I go to your profile and I like the song that you got, I could click on the artist and basically steal your song. Mm -hmm. Like Now you have opportunities to, if I like your video on TikTok, I can make my version of your video. I can react to your video. I can mimic your video and place it side by side and take your ecosystem into mine. TikTok is going to be around for a long time. Like literally it's going to be around for a long time because it's the same way MySpace was the framework for Facebook. Right? Like it's going to be around for a while. So when having conversations with those influencers, if I'm having those conversations directly, it could be, hey, because I do a lot of research into what, the influencers naturally like. If I'm going to collaborate with an influencer on a client or a campaign, I want it to be as organic as possible. I don't want it to seem as though it's something you just stuck hashtag ad at the end of. So if I'm an influencer, prime example, if you're using me as an influencer, I naturally listen to Afrobeat and R&B. That's something you will catch me walking around my house listening to. If you're working an Afrobeat artist, you probably want me to be playing the music randomly as I'm making an Insta story. That's going to be the most natural syndication possible. Or if I create specific content. So I know you see people who do try on hauls where it's like Monday, I'm wearing this outfit, Tuesday, this outfit, whatever, whatever. What's the song in the background? It's the record that you want me to to share, right? As organic as possible. I'm not having to dance to it. It's passive, but it's there. And there's a a paid placement. And It's happening so seamlessly and so naturally that when it first started happening, I didn't realize. I didn't realize that some of these were paid collaborations. And yes, they may have started off that way. But now, as you said, on TikTok, people are kind of borrowing and mimicking and putting themselves in it. So by the time it reaches mass consumption, you don't even know that it started with a paid placement. And I think that's your job, right? To do that seamlessly and start a wildfire. Literally, literally, literally. So now when it comes to Instagram, though, it sounds like the video component, you're using the same TikTok as well as Insta Story or Reels strategy. Is there a different strategy you would use for a feed, perhaps, when it comes to maybe memes? So feeds and memes, and this is going to be very crass to say, they're dying. Mm. Right? Please tell me more. <laughs> like, no, because before, and this is like, you know, Three, four years ago, a static meme, you're like, oh man, this is funny. Let me share. And da 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 da. But now you need something that's a bit more dynamic. You want video, you want the reaction. You know, like my friends and I have this whole thing where uh, somebody will say something out of pocket and I'll be like, who said that? Who said that? And that's from Real Housewives of Atlanta. Mm. Right. And there's this gif where, uh, I think Kendra, somebody says something to her. She goes, who said that? And everybody at the table just, who said? But you wouldn't understand the nuance of that meme and static. 
Yeah, you only understand the nuance of that in video. You only understand the nuance in that if you're able to hear pitch and tone and truly understand what's being said. And that's why I feel like static memes are dying. I feel like slapstick meme culture in the sense of commentary is going to be here for a very long time. But I don't believe that the memes themselves will be around for very long. I think video is going to be the reaction that we cling to. Moving into the video landscape, I know YouTube has always been a great hub for for music. How are you using some of those marketing strategies now for YouTube? Because that seems to be the mainstay of video today. YouTube is going to be around forever. And it has to do with YouTube has always been our premier on-demand video channel. Right. So that could be music videos, that could be hair tutorials, that could be makeup tips, home redecoration. YouTube is always going to be that premier stop because though they may chase different verticals and iterations, like right now, YouTube has their variation of stories. Like you can go on YouTube. If I, if I subscribe to your channel, I can see your stories and you as a creator can monetize against that. But YouTube has always been the archive of like everything that goes on. If I'm an artist and I'm wanting to weaponize YouTube to that degree, it becomes my historical catalog of everything I've done. So think McGraw-Hill, but visual, right? Like instead of going textbook, I'm giving you Wiz Khalifa tour diaries from 2008 to 2012. So you can go see every time he failed and won and understand why people hold him so near and dear like they do today. Interesting. So as far as real-time engagement and real-time reaction, it sounds like you're not going to be using YouTube for that, but you will be using other channels and then maybe archiving on YouTube. No, you would still use YouTube for that. But I think that moment with YouTube may wane over time, right? Like, because YouTube has a couple of tools where it's like, premiere with. So say you have an official video you want to drop and you want to watch it with everyone at the same time, you could do a world premiere and you could literally, as you're talking right here, say, Hey, we're going to queue up this video at nine. It's now nine o'clock. You get to make an intro and watch it with your subscribers for the first time together. Right? Like that option's really, really great. It's, it's the Michael Jackson thriller moment, right? But digital where it's like everybody in the entire world watched Thriller at the same time. Will that matter when we're able to go outside? Not quite sure. But during a pandemic, it makes the world of sense. But I don't think you has to worry about operating in that space when people are able to be on the go because it'll always serve as archive. Got it. So now you mentioned generations before. And for the longest time, marketers talked about marketing to millennials, but all of a sudden we are no longer the more influential culture creators, at least in my opinion, you can let me know your sense about that. So how are you changing the way that you market now to subsequent generations or if at all? Oh, girl, I realize we're old. (laughs) That was my PC way of saying we're old and irrelevant now so (laughs) we're not irrelevant we're not irrelevant but it just to mess with your head a little bit millennials have kids that are gen z 
and there's a generation alpha in existence, right? So it's like, and I think generation alpha is anyone born after 20, 2012, 2010, 2012. Yeah, like, so like the millennial cutoff is 94. Um, Gen Z is 95 to 01. Uh, Gen alpha is 02 to 12, like, like to present day. Like it's very, Gen alpha and Gen Z overlap a little bit more than like our generation does with like the baby boomers or Gen X. Like, it's one of those things where it's like at the start of the pandemic, and this is because I have this whole thing where it's like, uh, I think that the FDA has a bad publicist. I think coronavirus has a terrible publicist. I I really do. That's just my personal take. I think if they had a better publicist, things would be different, but that's neither. But I say this because the immediate (laughs) messaging was, we need the millennials to stay home. And it's like, millennials have kids and mortgages. They are at home. Gen Z's outside. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So when talking about marketing Mm -hmm. and the shift in culture, we're not the barometer that's going to be spending for as long. Right. We're passing the buck. Gen Z is graduating college, has no real responsibilities and disposable income. We have mortgages, children and parents that are too old to listen to us, but we still trying to make them listen to us, even though they don't want to. Right. We have real responsibilities that aren't going anywhere. And Gen Z is like, hey, I'm outside, right? Right. That stated, it's not that we're not important to market to. It's just theoretically not to be really morbid. But in five years, our generation theoretically starts dying off. Right? Like, just, yeah. Like, like what? True story. Midlife crisis starts hitting. Yeah coronaries, the whole thing, like it it starts for our generation in about five years. Gen Z has a cool 15 years to follow. I'm going to put my sweat equity in making this new generation fans because they're going to be fans for a longer time because they're younger. Mm -hmm. And that's really it. It's not that we're not great to market to. It's just they know we're going to get real frugal in like six years short-term versus long-term strategy when it comes to marketing. So what are, what are some of the tactics then that you think business owners can start to kind of implement and invest in as they are looking forward to the bigger population that's, or the younger population that's coming up? I think the more is more concept. And it's going to sound very strange. I think our generation was predicated on less is more. Hey, I have this cup of coffee. You need this. And you're like, oh man, I do need coffee. Coffee. I'm kind of sleepy. That's great. Gen Z is like, hey, this is caffeine. Here are the 10 benefits versus the six downsides. If you drink this for the next five years, you'll be fine. Or if your metabolism will go up, Gen Z is like, cool, I'm going to make that informed decision and take it. Right? Like, I had this weird conversation with a Gen Z -er yesterday about. John Benet Ramsey. Throwback. Right. She wasn't alive for John Benet Ramsey. Mm. Right. She was she was born a year, was it two years after Columbine? So explaining to her, hey, there's a significance about John Benet Ramsey's death. She's like, why? I don't get it. And I go, because preceding her death, stranger danger was not a thing. Or it was brought front and center. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It was centered. It was centered. The, the danger and the perils of being approached by an adult you didn't know were highlighted. Mm-hmm. Especially now in the media. Correct. Because pre-John Benet, if you're a kid and you need help, oh, go ask an adult. Post-John Benet, you're a kid and you need help, only approach strangers you know. Mm-hmm. No is no. Stranger danger, right? Like, just going just a little bit deeper, she's never existed in school where there hasn't been a gunfire, gun drill, right? Like active shooter drills. Like she's never had a time period before that. September 11th has always been a historical event. Just random things like that. But I bring all of that up because if I'm talking about businesses and how they approach that generation, they're the information generation. Oh, you want us to do an active shooter drill? Why? Mm-hmm. Even with my seven-year-old, why? Ex- why, why explain to me the details. Let me make my own informed decision. I'm like, no, girl, you're seven. Correct, correct. You want me to take these vitamins? What's the purpose? Okay, you, you say vitamins? Literally, she's reading the label. But that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't read. My mom say take a vitamin? Okay, mom. No, she has that vitamin label memorized because she's reading. She wants to know all the flavors and what the flavors mean. That is so true. <laughs> so if I'm on the business end, I'm giving you as much information as I can share. It is the organic, vegan, gluten-free version of life. Mm. This has gluten in it, but this level of gluten isn't toxic. This has dairy in it. But this level of dairy is triple pasteurized and won't affect you even if you are lactose intolerant. This has this has this is adverse for people with nut allergies, but here's your alternative option. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a business owner, I'm giving you as much information as possible. This was sourced in Malaysia, but assembled in Texas and distributed in Washington. But how is that different from how we approach, I don't know, quite a bit. I think the Made in America label is something that a lot of people look for these days because they're conscious of, you know, where was this produced? Or people who are gluten-free are also looking for that information. So how is our need for information different from their need for information? Because we still do things based out of ritual and habit. This is like, if you're talking black hair care and we love our hair oils and Jamaica black castor oil and whoop-de-whoop-de-whoop and da 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 I'll still go get sulfur eight and put it in my hair because it works. There's petroleum in sulfur eight. I know it, but guess who doesn't care? Me. Why? It works. Mm. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, and how do I know it works? Because I am in my 30s and it has worked for 30 plus years of my life. So I'm still use it. Mm. Versus the people who are their their first thought is is it clean what are the ingredients as opposed to because we're black women right and we talk hair care is like 90 mm-hmm. percent of our lives my friends started getting relaxers again they said forget being natural mm. and i understood it i felt it in my spirit i was like look girl i'm, I'm this close <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? but it, it's one of those things where it's like a gen zer would be like Oh, so you're going to put those lie chemicals in your hair? That's crazy. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't opt in. They've always had alternative options. 
and I think that's the thing. That's the key. They've always had alternatives, whereas we were born into relaxers. We were born into certain rituals, as you say. There weren't alternatives. So when you have alternatives, you start to ask questions in order to make your own informed decision. Got it. Okay. Hmm. So that's a lot to think about. If you are a new business that's starting today and you know that your target audiences might straddle generations, you probably need to start thinking about how to speak to them or make a call, pick a side of, of who you want to market to if you don't have the means to market to everybody on both sides. And now I want to dig into the artists that you are representing today. You mentioned that the record labels are simply kind of the, the gas for them as they are growing. Is there a point at which artists feel like they have made it? I know there was a recently a conversation between Drake and I don't know who, where someone was not nominated for a Grammy. And I think Drake had said, why are you so pressed over this? Because already you are streaming everywhere. You're making the money independent of the labels and independent of the establishment. So those things should no longer matter. So today, do you think the level of success or attaining success differs when you look at artists? I think so. I think success is subjective. I think there's some artists who are happy just being able to feed themselves and take care of their families for the rest of their lives. I don't think it's so funny. Pre-pandemic, there are some artists that I had represented who were just fine with being able to tour a hundred days out of a year for the next 20 years with their friends. Wow. They never wanted to be on radio. Uh, they never wanted a platinum hit. They just wanted to do what they love for forever. That was success to them, right? Like where I have some artists that are like, I want to be on every news station. Like I want to be on every TV channel. I want to be on every show. That's success to me. It, it's subjective. It boils down to what they want. And I think once we get to the heart of what an artist wants and what that really means in tangible terms, the execution of that becomes way, way more easy than we think it is. Like it's not as difficult as it is. Like if your goal is, hey, I want to make for sake of terms, because I'm thinking of math in my head. If if I want to make a thousand dollars every month off of this business, right? I want to make a thousand dollars every month. That means you every month you have to get a hundred people to give you ten dollars. Or you have to get a thousand people to give you one dollar. That's like the bare, it's the thousand fan theory. It's the bare minimum of it, right? Because over the course of a year, that $1,000 every month is going to give you $12,000 bet. But if you want to go beyond that, I want to make $10,000 every month. Now we're looking at how do we get 1,000 people to give you $10 each month? Because $10,000 every month is going to give us about $120,000 every year. And that's enough for you to live a comfortable life, right? But if you're like, hey, you know what, Dimples, I... I want to make a couple million dollars and just chill. Cool. So I'm like, okay, what business can we set up to where you're not making 10K every month, you're making 100? How much merch do we have to sell? What do our margins have to look like on your t shirts? How many songs do we have to put out? If we're putting out this song, what's the capsule or the D to C strategy behind the song we're putting out? D to C, what does that mean? Uh, direct to consumer. Okay. 
what's our strategy there? And if D to C is showing that the margins would be too small, if we de- if we design this capsule collection, what are our B two B options? What businesses can we partner with in order to grow and scale your margin? You want to make a couple million dollars in a year? Bet we got to make at least a hundred k every month. We have to net that, not gross. We have to net a hundred k every month at least. How do we get there? How do we maximize profit? And those are the conversations you wind up happening. Because some people don't even care about that. They're like, hey, I want to just have fun. But are the record labels and you, for that matter, working with artists who just want to make 12K a year and do what they love? How does that make business sense for you or them? I do have some artists who do. As as crazy as this sounds, I have some artists where it's like, hey, I just want to be comfortable and share my story, right? And then it's for me or the label or management or whatever to go and identify how do we set them up to be the most successful for the longest amount of time, right? Because like we've been doing this a while. Some people are hot a year. Some people are hot six months. Some people are hot five years. Drake has had arguably one of the longest runs ever, right? Mm -hmm. And he's not stopping, right? So it's one of those things where it's like, you could be anywhere between a Fetty Wap and a Drake. I don't know where you sit right now, but how do I make sure in that window, we're helping you set up the strongest foundation as possible? Like, because talking Fetty Wap, Fetty Wap had a beautiful summer, like, what is it, four or five years ago, where he had three songs on the radio and put out an EP, the whole nine, and kind of disappeared a little bit. Those three records are still making him money. He's still receiving plaques off of those three records. He toured for two years off of those three records, right? And if you're part of his team or his business manager or whatever, as he's bringing in that money off of those three songs, you're stacking, you're saving, you're reinvesting, you're making sure that Fetty and his family are going to be good for life off of three songs. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a different play. But then you talked about the subscription model. What platforms are you using? Because I'm hearing different things about Patreon not being that great. Maybe on Spotify, you're not really getting much for a million streams. So what are the platforms of choice right now? Great question. Unless it's a direct platform or it's like a Squarespace, so you're using Stripe. It's it really is dealer's choice because OnlyFans is good, but OnlyFans for straight music. Only, yep, but OnlyFans has their issues with payouts because a lot of celebrities hopped on, and it went from being a situation where it's like net seven payout to net thirty or sometimes net sixty. And if you're sitting around waiting for a check for sixty days, you're kind of like, right? Where's my money? Go pay this bill. What's going on? Uh, yeah, so that that's the thing. That's literally where it's at. Whereas Patreon, it's, it's, it's a little different. The payouts are a little quicker. They've been around a lot longer. But the thing I always encourage people is get people to opt in with like PayPal or add your, create an app, wind up in the app store so you can charge them repeatedly through iOS. Figure out a way to be a reoccurring debit, reoccurring donation, what have you. 
and let your fans, let your followers support you monetarily. If they believe in you, what you're trying to do, your message, your story, what you're willing to share, what have you, they'll do it. So on a Squarespace side, is it merch? Are they releasing exclusive music? What are they releasing to keep their people happy? Is it, you know? Both. Both or Squarespace actually does give you a reoccurring, reoccurring purchase option. There is that option there. So you can build your own website and half of it could be gated. And it's gated around the idea of if you're within the community, you get to come and see this part, right? It's the band cap model. When TDE was just starting and Kendrick dropped overly dedicated, it was released through Bandcamp. You had to pay for it out of pocket. It was like five ninety nine or something, whatever. Pay mm-hmm. for it. And he saw the money, right? Like, but then you had options to buy in and be notified early, right? Like, I think it was like a dollar to be on his early list to get notifications or about merch, about music, what have you. Like, man, I, you have to pay to be on the list. I feel like right now we give people value to come on our list. So that is definitely a different way of thinking about it. But it boils down to like, how great is what you're creating, right? Like it, it starts with the product, right? Like it starts with what you're sharing. People were able to buy into Kendrick's product and who he is as a person so much. That's an easy sell. Bro, I will subscribe for a dollar if it helps you with studio time. That's fine. Because my dollar is not going to make or break you. But if there's a thousand of us, that's going to make a dent. Mm. After hearing this, people are going to be like, how can I get Dimples on my team? Because I like the way she's thinking about everything. That's what I like to do. I like to step outside of my industry and learn what's working for them and figure out how can I apply it in my world? Because soon after you do one thing, the market becomes saturated with copycats who just kind of dilute the efforts there. So for anyone who's heard what you do and they're thinking, how do I collaborate? How do I get in touch with you and find you? Where can we find you? Honestly, I have like a number on my Instagram and I answer people's questions at random. That's like my big thing. I'm at the point where I'm not adding clients at the moment, but I'm always down to help because I remember when I was starting, I would ask random people for questions and advice. And if they didn't give it to me, I don't think I'd be where I am today. So always here for that. So what is your Instagram handle? Where can we find you there? Dimples, D-I-M-P-L-E-Z. It's kind of like share one word. I was going to say Beyonce, but you know, that's my girl. She don't cool. <laughs> Nobody's Beyonce. Really cool. But yeah, no. So find me at Dimples, D-I-M-P-L-E-Z on Instagram. I literally, in my bio, there's a phone number. Text it. I respond. Great. Thank you so much for all this knowledge because it's insight I certainly didn't have and hopefully it's going to help someone out there. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course, of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hi, Oscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. 